record. Okay, well, welcome everyone. This is a, a first for me. Uh, this is my first solo, well, not solo, but first hosting of a podcast. Uh, we're going to call it Papa's Pod until people make fun of me enough. Uh, 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 and uh, I'm here with quite the guest, my my good friend, one of my great friends, uh, the legendary Dr. Mani Moyudin uh, from Utah, University of Utah uh, Huntsman Cancer Center, who is my go-to for all things myeloma. Okay, and the, the point of this is where these are going to be brief, you know, 15, 20 minute kind of dialogues of, very, uh, of clinical scenarios in malignant hematology, uh, where we go over how we approach these diseases. And we're not going to get too much into the weeds, none of this MRD or fancy stuff. Really what you need to know as a practicing physician, uh, how to take care of your patients, how to deal with toxicities, and maybe some key trials. So uh, I'm here with Mani. Uh, I'll let him take it away. All right. So thanks for having me here. Uh, this is exciting. So I think let's start off with uh, MGUS versus smoldering versus myeloma. Try not to get into the weeds of it. So how I explain it to, to residents and first-year fellows is you conceptually go from low-volume disease that is not causing any issues, which is MGUS, to more volume disease, but which is still not causing any issues, that is smoldering, to high volume disease that is now causing issues, which is myeloma. So there's a spectrum. Generally speaking, there are some, some cutoffs that we use, right? So if your serum monoclonal protein is less than three and your bone marrow plasma cell percentage is less than 10, and you have no evidence whatsoever of any end organ damage, but you but you do have a detectable monoclonal protein or you know abnormal light chains that would fall more into the MGUS category. Now, when you hit a plasma cell percentage of more than ten, or if your serum monoclonal protein is more than three, then you at the minimum have at least you have smoldering myeloma. It it boils down to whether or not there's any end organ damage, which is you know, historically has been defined by the CRAB criteria, which you, you all are aware of, hypercalcemia, renal dysfunction, anemia, bone, uh, bone lytic lesions. So if you have CRAB criteria, then yeah, that would fall into myeloma. And if you don't, then that would fall into smoldering. The other one caveat which fellows do need to know is that in 2014, the International Myeloma Working Group did change the definition. And even if patients did not have CRAB features, but they had other features of of uh, smoldering myeloma, let's say they had like more than 10% plasma cells, even if they didn't have crab features, if they had what's what are now called slim features. So basically that means a bone marrow plasma cell percentage of more than 60% and involved over uninvolved light chain ratio of more than 100. So let's say your kappa is, you know, more than 100 times the lambda or, or vice versa. Or if you had more than one bone marrow lesion on MRI, and this is not a bone lytic lesion, this is a, a you know a focal bone marrow lesion on MRI um, that was you know more than uh, more than five millimeter that also qualified as uh, as a criteria. So that sort of changed the natural history. I think that's one important thing to note that you know you can technically have the diagnostic meet the diagnostic criteria for myeloma even if you don't have the crab features, as long as you have one of these slim features. So that sort of covers the, the diagnostic thing. There are a lot of more weeds you can get into, but I think the conceptual framework as you move from low volume disease to high volume disease, and then as you start picking up end organ damage, you move from MGUS to myeloma. MGUS, extremely common. Vast majority of people with MGUS will never, ever go on to develop myeloma. And then myeloma is, is obviously much more rare, and that's something that, um, that requires intervention. Yeah, no, I think the key distinction is that, you know, 
we used to think of myeloma is you have plasma cells in the bone marrow and you have end organ damage related to the plasma cell proliferation. With this new slim crab criteria, you can have active multiple myeloma by a working group's definition uh, uh, with uh, 10% or more plasma cells. Uh, excuse me, if you have a light chain greater than a ratio greater than 100 or greater than 60% plasma cells or a focal lesion on MRI more than five millimeters. So that they could be asymptomatic, but would meet criteria for active myeloma. Okay. Uh, so we, we, we know kind of MGUS, smoldering myeloma. Uh, now we're dealing with a, a real myeloma patient uh, in front of us, okay? They're healthy, otherwise uh, maybe 50 years old, uh, maybe a little bit of hypertension. And they come to you with myeloma and they go, doc, what does this mean uh, for me? What's my prognosis? Uh, so how do you approach this in your first clinic visit with risk stratification and telling patients what this means for them? Absolutely. So I think the first thing is, uh, you, you know, you, you tell them what disease they have and you sort of have a conversation about the natural history of the disease, the prognosis of the disease. So broadly speaking, um, you know, the oldest staging systems for myeloma have, you know, utilized um, the albumin and the beta, beta 2 microglobulin. Um, but over the last several decades, we know that there's a lot more to, you know, to myeloma than, you know, the volume of disease as measured by the beta 2 microglobulin. Um, so we look at the fluorescence in situ hybridization. So you're looking at, you're selecting out the plasma cells from the bone marrow specimen, and you're seeing if there are any characteristic high-risk signatures on those plasma cells. As we all know, deletion 17P is always a bad thing, right? Whatever cancer uh, you're talking about. But then there are some translocations involving chromosome 14, which uh, can also portend a poorer prognosis, 414 being the most important one of them. Um, and then, you know, 14, 16, 14, 20 have also generally been considered high risk, but they're pretty rare. So 414, deletion 17P. And then gains in myeloma. So having an extra copy of a chromosome is generally a good thing. All right. That's important to know for all fellows. The one exception to that is if you have an extra copy of chromosome 1Q. All right. So if you have one extra copy, meaning three total copies, right, that's called gain 1Q. If you have two or more extra copies, meaning four or more, that's called AMP 1Q. You know, this is where it starts getting a little dicey, but keeping it just simple from a fellow perspective Gain 1Q, meaning one extra copy, is bad if it's associated with other high-risk features. So if you have gain 1Q and 414, that's like a lot worse than having just 414. If you have gain 1Q, 414, and deletion 17P, that's a lot worse. If you have gain 1Q by itself, I would say it's probably a little worse based on the data compared to if you didn't have gain 1Q, but it isn't you know, high risk, like the way deletion 17P is. And then AMP1Q, which is four or more copies, um, generally is, is a bad thing, even if you don't have other high risk features. So we have, you know, a lot of staging systems out there. There have been a few new ones that have come out over the last year, but the ones that the fellows should know is probably the RISS. So that uses albumin, beta-2 microglobulin, um, LDH, and then it uses, you know, some of these high risk features that I mentioned. Gain1Q is not considered a high risk feature uh, for for the RISS, but that's just one, one thing for the fellows to know. Uh, I think next time you see a patient with myeloma, just, you know, log in online, do it a few times and you'll get the hang of it. Um, lots of people fall into RISS too, right? So that's one of the shortcomings and there's a lot of heterogeneity between RISS too. Some of it is actually really bad and some of it, you know, some people do well. So that is sort of a simple way. There's no perfect way. There are many other measures of risk as well, but that's just a simple primer to understanding fish abnormalities in myeloma. Yeah. I think it's important, and this always confused me, is that, um, you know, the RISS, which is what we use the most, or what I used, um, 
there are other high-risk features that don't fall into that, like the gain of 1Q or the amplification. Uh, um, so that always confused me. And certain studies or certain research articles you may read may refer to different groups of, of high-risk patients. But right. I, I think the ones to remember, those I remember the 14s like you, the 414, uh, 1416, 1420, uh, course deletion 17P, and then the gain of 1Q. And all the yeah. other gains, as you said, are not so good, are, are they, good, hyper-deployed myeloma. Yes. And they love asking this on the boards. Yes. I saw this on my boards, which which of the following you know, translocations is not high risk? So they're going to give you all these ones involving 14, but then there's going to be 11, 14 in there, and that is not consider uh, yeah. so that was on my board that's a very common question they're not love. supposed to release board uh question material <laughs> on that no they, and they're bs questions let's be honest you can look this stuff up but say it a few times with us you know 414 14 16 14 20 again on q and you're good it's not so bad okay exactly. aml's worse um so and that's your, and how would you you know so a patient with none of the bad stuff, you know, with an RISS1, uh, none of the high-risk cytogenetics. With modern therapy, it transpinels, but what would you tell them their life expectancy is? It's important when we see patients in clinic to be able to tell them what to expect. So what would you Absolutely. tell them about that yeah. So I heard this from somebody wiser than I am, that prognosticating myeloma is like, you know, looking up at the stars and what you see is, you know, what was, what, what happened in the past, right? Because there's so many rapid advances that are happening for people with, you know, relapsed refractory disease. And, and so, it's hard to prognosticate, right? But generally you can say that most people with standard risk myeloma diagnosed today are expected to live in the ballpark of decades. It's not going to be months and it's not going to be a few years, right? And whatever estimate you see, if you if you look up online and you see a 10-year estimate, that doesn't account for all of the new changes that have come recently and the new changes that are hopefully going to come during the patient's lifetime. So for good, you know, for standard risk myeloma, outcomes are good and are getting better and better. We might be curing a fraction of these people, but generally speaking, people need chronic long-term therapy and the risk of relapse never goes away. So, you know, a lot of people would consider that an incurable disease. But basically, with effective multi-agent treatment given for long periods of time, people can live for a very long period of time, and that's only getting better. And what about the the the, the forty-eight year old who shows up to your clinic with, you know, deletion seventeen P, maybe even another high risk feature? You know, these ultra high risk patients. What are we looking at for these patients? That's a great question. So I think that unfortunately, the outcomes have they might have gotten a little better, but whatever treatment you give. If you look at the subgroups that have the information that you mentioned, they always do worse. Um, I would say that with some of these more recent trials, with more you know continuous treatment being given for long periods of time, with upfront use of a transplant, you know you're getting more of these people past the historic two to three year mark into more in the ballpark of you know five ish years or so. Again, I, my, I'm optimistic that some of the newer treatments would prolong their life expectancy further, but I'm definitely not rosy in the sense that. I'm not thinking that we're going to, you know, with our current technology, you know, be keeping these people alive for decades, but we try our best, you know, just having just that because you have those high risk features doesn't by any means guarantee your fate. There's a subset of these patients who do well and who live like the way standard risk does. Um, so it's, it's tough again to prognosticate, but historically outcomes for high risk myeloma have been in the ballpark of two to three years survival. My hope is that the newer regimens, it, it's going to be better than that. Yeah, and how I kind of, you know, from a, the not as nuanced approach as Monty, um, you know, for standard risk, 
I think decade or more for the ultra high risk, you know, you know, two to four years and everyone else somewhere in between. Um, but again, you know, patients, you know, you have good risks that do bad and, and vice versa. Uh, but uh, again, I, I, I'm a huge fan of setting kind of expectations with my patients. Uh, um, so that's a, a quick, uh, nice approach to risk stratification. So now let's take this 50 year old. Uh, uh, we're going to, you know, Yes, clinical trials are always greatest, but we're in the real world here. So in the non-clinical trial approach, someone with no medical comorbidities other than high blood pressure that's controlled and they're 50, uh, transplant eligible, we would call it. What would be your recommendation for, for, for treatment? Absolutely. So I want to try to simplify this. There, you know, there are going to be some nuances that are lost. So you talk about the goals of treatment, which is to help them live as long as possible and maintain the best quality of life during that, that course. Generally speaking, um, you using at the minimum for such a fit patient, you should use a three drug induction regimen. Multiple trials have shown that a three drug induction regimen compared to two drug induction regimen offers um, better progression free survival and also for some of those trials, better survival. All right. So there have been some recent trials. And again, because we're talking in a, for a very long time point, we're not going to have answers on overall survival very quickly, but there have been recent trials. There's a trial from Europe called the Cassiopeia trial, which compared a DERA tumumab containing four drug regimen, DERA, Velcade, Thalidomide Dex to Velcade, Thalidomide Dex, and there was better PFS with the use of quad. There's also a DERA from the US, and this is a phase two study, so it's only powered for you know, stringent, complete uh, response, but that compared DERA, Velcade, Revlimid, Dex to Velcade, Revlimid, Dex. And again, the, uh, you know, the response rates and, you know, the observed PFS was better with the DERA VRD arm. So I think that while we await long-term data, uh, which will take a very long time to show, you know, the outcomes that truly matter overall survival, I think on a, on a case-by-case basis, I think in the United States, um, for a patient who, who themselves will not experience financial toxicity, I think it is very reasonable to consider quad therapy um, upfront with the hope that the short-term outcomes we're seeing will translate to better long-term outcomes. And I say this because addition of daratumumab as a fourth drug does not dramatically increase the toxicity. So you're not talking another drug that's going to make them feel horrible and going to cause secondary cancers. And, and, you know, you're just adding one more infusion when they're already coming in once a week and it hopefully will hopefully will translate to better outcomes. We don't know that. We want to know that for a long time. So my general approach is induction with a quad. The quads that we use here in the US most commonly are DERA, Velcade, Revlimid, DEX. And there are other quads you can use. We have many single arm studies that have, you know, looked at DERA, Carfilzomib, Revlimid, Dexamethasone, right? Um, I don't know if that's better than DERA, Velcade, Revlimid, Dexamethasone. We do have a trial that's compared VRD, Velcade Revlimid Dexamethasone, to KRD, Carfilzomib Revlimid Dexamethasone. And, um, you know, that did not show improvement with Carfilzomib Revlimid Dexamethasone. So start with the quad. And then the next big question comes transplant or no transplant? Yeah, before right? that, before that, so would you yeah. say just to really basic it up for a new fit patient, you know, there's really only two choices right now that we're using in the United States. It's either quad with DARA RVD or in some where you're not ready for the quad, RVD would still be appropriate therapy, correct? Correct. I think RVD is a perfectly appropriate yeah. therapy. There is no data that we have that shows long-term that you know data RVD is better. We're using this based on phase two data with a lot of uncertainty on our estimate. I think on the boards, if you were if you were asked, that VRD would be a correct answer. Yeah, they, they shouldn't. Yeah, I would hope. Exactly. I think both would be suitable. And then one last thing, you know, while we're going over this, really 
three inductions that we currently are using, RVD, DARRVD, and what about Cybor-D? So cyclophosphamide, uh, velcade, and dexamethasone. Is there anyone now, like in this patient scenario that we're talking about, where you would use Cybor-D? So I think we have to acknowledge that Cybor-D has no high-quality randomized data to back it up. Um, Cybor-D, uh, as opposed to VRD, uh, which has high quality randomized data showing OS benefit. Cyborg I think, can be considered in situations where um, you want to avoid using Revlimid, whether that's because, you know, the renal function is really bad and you're worried about managing the, the dose and the toxicities of Revlimid, or whether that's, uh, you know, somebody in the hospital and, you know, in the United States, getting Revlimid takes a while. There's a lot of paperwork um, involved. So I think for those situations, you can consider Cyborg-D induction. And I think Cyborg-D, you have to acknowledge in, in, in low resource settings, it's a pretty cheap regimen. Um, so I think, and, and again, there's no head-to-head -head data between Cyborg-D and RVD, at least high quality randomized data. But you got to admit that the evidence base for RVD is a lot stronger. And other than those two unique situations I mentioned, you probably shouldn't be using Cyborg-D in routine practice. Yeah. It was just for completeness. And I say, yes, I, I would maybe use Cyborgy is first round for that acutely ill hospitalized patient renal failure. Although there was some data that you don't even need the cyclophosphamide and maybe just can give the Velcade dex uh, to those patients. Uh, um, but um, okay. So, and then one, just because Dara RVD is a little bit new for us, you know, practically, how are you giving it? You know, what, you know, all these RVD studies give the Velcade twice weekly, but I mean, like I never give Velcade twice weekly. I give it weekly. So what are you what are, how are you actually dosing this and spacing it out? And are you doing the DARA for all the cycles? Just a, briefly on how you're doing it. That's such a great question. So the first thing that we have to acknowledge, and this brings up a broader point, is that all of these registrational trials have used Welkid at twice a week dosing. Um, and that has been shown study after study to have a much higher rate of neuropathy. And it's worse for quality of life because people have to come in twice a week to get infusions. Now, even the Griffin trial, which I quoted, uh, did have Velcade at, um, at twice a week. Um, and they were fairly high rates of neuropathy. But when I use Velcade, I use Velcade once a week. All right. So that's how, how I, uh, how I, how I give Velcade. And even when I am giving Velcade as part of a quad, like the Griffin, I am using Velcade, um, basically once a week. Is this at 1.5? Uh, so 1.3 milligram oh. per meter square is, is how I do it. Okay. Um, and I acknowledge that, you know, it's a little different from how trials have done it, but I think most people who are using WellKid and who, who see a decent amount of myeloma use once a week WellKid. I think that the overall data that we have from multiple studies, including real world studies, et cetera, is that once a week has fairly similar efficacy to twice a week and is a lot less toxic. So that is how, how, how I do it. So the weekly now, Velcade and then the Revlimid, how are you doing it? 21 of a 28 day or what? So that's a good question. I don't think there's any right way to do it. I think that we, I think Griffin was, uh, from what I remember was, uh, 21 day cycles. Yeah. So, so that would mean two weeks on one week off. So that is how I do it when I do data RVD. Again, this is where, you, you know, you can get really into the weeds, right? Because there's some Revlimid protocols that have three weeks on one week off, Griffin had two weeks on, one week off. So that's how I how, how I do it. But I, I don't think you're wrong if you're doing three weeks you on, one week off. You say it doesn't, we don't think it matters. You know, I, I see a lot of confusion, like everyone does this, you know, I, I do it three weeks on, one week off and do everything weekly because I like things in 28s. Some people do it 14 of 21 days, you know, uh, and again, it, it, it doesn't really seem to matter. 
Uh, if only the myeloma studies stopped doing twice. I said, the only one getting twice weekly Valcade is <laughs> on a myeloma study these days. Uh, uh, but hopefully that's changed soon. And then the DARA, are you continuing the DARA the, uh, throughout the whole induction or, 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 or no? Yeah, so the way the, the way the trials were written, DARA tumumab was given weekly um, through those four cycles. Um, and I mean, then the Griffin trial was given after transplant as well. We'll get to that in a moment. But um, generally speaking, yes, I do give daratumumab throughout those four cycles. I think there's definitely room for less is more approaches to be studied. But as of right now, yes, you do give it through the four cycles. Okay. So we have our induction, DARA-RVD or RVD or rare scenario, Cyborg-D. Mm-hmm. Uh, um, we can uh, space out the dosing of LK to weekly uh, DARA throughout induction if you're doing it. And now you're approaching, we have a transplant eligible patient. Uh, um, they've gotten their three to four cycles of quad induction therapy. And, and what's the decision tree right here? Absolutely. So we will start by acknowledging that our use of high-dose chemotherapy followed by the patient's own stem cells to help them recover, which is called autologous stem cell transplant, has consistently shown a progression-free survival benefit in, in modern contemporary myeloma trials. The two trials relevant to this are IFM 2009 and Determination. In both trials, PFS was much better. In determination, it was about 20 months better with the upfront use of transplant compared to the the control arm, which basically, you know, just got RVD, then got collected, then got some more RVD, and then eventually de-escalated to Revlimid. So we acknowledge that PFS is better. However, at about seven to eight years of follow-up in both these trials, IFM 2009 and determination, there is no overall survival benefit. The curves are virtually superimposable at seven to eight years. We also acknowledge that there is a lot of short-term toxicity um, and there is a significant detriment to quality of life initially um, because of cytopenias and bad GI side effects, you know, um, fatigue, taste changes, weight loss, a lot of debility. Most people do recover. If you look at the quality of life thing, you know, people are usually back by the three-month mark, but we we do have to acknowledge that it's quite a bit of a sacrifice for a few months. And we also acknowledge that there is a higher risk of myelodysplastic syndrome and secondary cancers with the upfront use of transplant. Now, if you present these four factors, to patients, they will make widely varying decisions. Everybody has different values. Everybody has different preferences. One of the issues with myeloma trials is that how progression happens is often not very clearly defined. It's difficult to consent these people because like they ask you, well, it means, what does it mean that my numbers are going to come up in, you know, come up earlier? Or is it going to mean I'm going to have a bone fracture earlier if I don't do a transplant? I would say that, you know, there is a significant minority of, of, uh, progression events that are clinical, but a lot of progression events are biochemical, meaning that, you know, when the, it's just going to be the numbers that are going to start coming up quicker if you choose a non-transplant approach compared to a transplant approach. So everybody makes different decisions. I think that, you know, you just got to present all of this information to patients and let them decide what they want to do. Um, there are a lot of people who very reasonably will make a decision to defer transplant, knowing that the outcomes are getting better and better and more treatment options are coming. So if somebody defers transplant, today, you give them, you know, three, four, five years, whatever PFS with whatever approach you did, it might be that they won't need a transplant. They lose something else later, right? Because there's so many new treatment options, but some people, they want to hit the cancer in the bud. They want to, they recognize it's not a cure, but they want to bring the numbers as down as possible. They also recognize that by doing a transplant, you can get rid of continuous weekly treatment earlier, right? Because how the non-transplant trials have been written is you give eight cycles and then you de-escalate. With transplant, you do four cycles, 
you know, then a transplant, and then you can kind of go to, to revlimid maintenance. So you get off that weekly burden of treatment a little earlier. So some people really like that, you know, they'll be like, we'll sacrifice our health for a few weeks, but we'll, you know, get, get to just taking a pill earlier. So no right answer. But on the boards, you should know that PFS is a lot better and OS is similar. One more key thing is that, you know, the receipt of transplant um, upon progression in the control arm. So in IFM 2009, the majority of people, about 77% of people who did relapse in the control arm got a transplant later. So IFM 2009 ended up being an early transplant versus late transplant study. And you can be like, maybe transplant later you know, helped. Um, but with determination, amongst those who progressed, only 28% of them got a transplant. So when I look at determination, I'm like, hey, people are having good outcomes, you know, by deferring transplant and, and then by not even getting a transplant at progression, they're getting other therapies and they're still living a decent amount of time and I'm averting toxicity. So I think that is one more thing to sort of consider, but definitely no right answer to this question. Um, Many of my people, actually, I will full, like, you know, full disclosure, after presenting all of the data, a lot of patients do decide if they're fit and young, they decide to go ahead with it because, you know, they like the idea of a longer remission and they like the idea of getting off treatment quicker okay. or getting off at least weekly treatment quicker. Yeah. So again, board progression-free survival is better with transplant, uh, um, but there are some nuances. It's seemingly to be less important for overall survival when you look at the aggregate of myeloma patients, although there are certainly probably patients that individually benefit from that Correct. Uh, approach. Um, and, and then really briefly uh, on maintenance, uh, uh, you know, because maintenance does come up, uh, there's really one thing that's largely supported by high quality evidence that could show up on a board exam uh, for maintenance uh, uh, after transplant. Absolutely. So data from, so pool data from three large trials, uh, patient level data has shown that there is an overall survival benefit with Revlimid maintenance um, after stem cell transplant. So that is the correct answer on your boards. And in real life, uh, I think that is the correct answer as well for patients with multiple myeloma. Now, I'm not going to get too deep into the weeds, but just a tiny little bit of nuance. That data comes from, you know, eras where we had less high quality therapy. So lots of people had a lot of residual disease going into transplant and after transplant. I don't know how important it is today for somebody who you know got a cord and transplant and their disease is, is, is pretty much gone on a, in, from the bone marrow, right? The other thing is that for high risk people, we know that if you do just Revlimid maintenance, generally relapses happen fairly quickly, right? That doesn't mean that more is better, right? But it does mean that we want to do more for those patients. And there is one randomized trial called the Forte trial, which after induction compared either Revlimid or Carfilzomib and Revlimid um, as a maintenance strategy. Now you can argue if you're giving Carfilzomib that often, it's not even maintenance anymore, but it basically showed that PFS was better with the Carfilzomib strategy for both high risk and standard risk, but OS is pending. And we're not going to know that for a long time, but sometimes you can use this study to justify a more aggressive maintenance approach for high risk. But generally speaking, you know, Revlimid maintenance is, is the way to go. For high risk, consider something more, but lots of nuance, uncertain data. Okay. And so, that, you know, that kind of finishes up transplant eligible. And the, the five minutes we have left, I just want to go over, uh, you know, supportive care uh, uh, type things, you know, how do you do bone modifying agents in, in this population? Are you giving Zometa, Denosumab? How, how do you space it? Absolutely. So 
I think that Zometa is a lot cheaper, and I would I would argue to you Zometa is probably a little safer as well. Um, so my go-to is Zometa. Um, I think that there are um, there's data from one large randomized trial that included you know close to 300 patients with myeloma that showed that Q3 monthly Zometa was just as good as Q monthly Zometa. So I think you're you're not wrong if you just start off at Q3 monthly Zometa and then complete after two years total of therapy. There are some protocols. A lot of myeloma trials have given Zometa every month. That's just how they were written and how they were compared. But that doesn't mean that you know you have to give every every month. I think every three months is fine. There is a trial that compared Zometa to um, to denosumab and. That trial, which I don't believe, I think it's just noise because the trial was not powered for this, but that trial did show better PFS with uh, denosumab. I don't think that is true. I think that denosumab is a lot more expensive and you you could consider denosumab on a case-by-case basis if somebody's creatinine clearance is less than 30 because you can't use Zometa. But even that is, you know, those patients have not been represented on trials and the risk of hypocalcemia is pretty significant, but you can consider that. But other than that, I think Zometa is the way to go. And I think every three months is acceptable as well. Total of two years. Yeah. So denosumab seems to be safer for the kidneys. It's an antibody. Uh, but more hypocalcemia, um, it's much more expensive. You know, so my practice has largely just been Zometa every three months for two years, uh, and then I stopped. So, and then finally, uh, in two minutes, I want you to tell us about um, with Revlimid and the risk of uh, thrombosis. Uh, are you using aspirin? Are you using Eliquis? Uh, you don't know. Is there? How are you making this decision? So, this is also an area where high quality data is needed. Um, we know that these modern quad trials, um, you know, let's say that all, all trials that have used DERA KRD, for example, have just given Epixaban for DVD prophylaxis. We know that in the Griffin trial, you know, those who were on aspirin, they had a fairly high, I think it was like more than 10% likelihood of getting a, a, a venous thromboembolic event. And we know that, you know, for a lot of our patients, aspirin isn't enough. Do I have high quality data that shows that you know, using a, a DOAC like a Pixaban or Rivaroxaban is better. I don't. So we, what we do, and again, this is not based on high quality practice, is that you can use, you know, there are multiple scores out there. So there's the Prism score, there's the Impede BTE score, um, and if they end up being at a higher risk of anticoagulation, at a higher risk of clot based on that score, I think you can consider using, you know, Rivaroxaban or Pixaban as prophylaxis. The problem is that if you put people on that score. And if you put the fact that they're, you know, using Revlimid and they're getting, you know, some steroids as part of the myeloma treatment, all of them are going to end up having lower than the minimum score. And hence, if you follow that religiously, you're going to end up giving, you know, Apixaban or Rivaroxaban to most patients. Um, so I will, I will admit to you that my personal practice based on low quality evidence is that most people who are getting quads, um, with, you know, DERA, VRD, et cetera, they do get, um, I do give them low dose of Pixaban or, or, or Rivaroxaban as DVT prophylaxis. That's just my practice. Um, I'm sure other people have different opinions. Yeah. And I will say just for testing purposes, I think the answer is they need some sort of thromboprophylaxis, but we don't know exactly which one. I, I use largely aspirin 81 for almost all patients. I haven't given a lot of quads yet. Um, uh, anyone with a history of DVT or things like that, even if it was years ago, then I will use uh, 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 Eliquis or, or uh, uh, something of that nature if I start uh, yeah. RVD. And again, the risk of thrombosis 
seems to be greater with more steroids, uh, maybe with Kyprolis and things like that. And, and another important thing is that it's highest in the first year of treatment and especially in the first few months of treatment. So I think that even if you do it during induction, you know, by the time they've done with induction and they're post-transplant, I think when they're on the maintenance phase and they're just getting Revlimid, I, I think you can de-escalate them at that time. Just aspirin, low dose is fine. Yeah. And then just to finish out supportive care, I think people forget sometimes with bortezomib, um, uh, the shingles likes to pop up. So uh, we usually use acyclovir uh, in, in those patients. Um, I'm trying to, so I, that, that was a nice talk on, on, on a, a, a newly diagnosed myeloma transplant eligible. We'll do another session at a later time on transplant ineligible. It's actually not much different. There's a few little nuances and I, I hope people found this useful. And then please leave any feedback, comments, any questions were always available uh, on the Substack and on Twitter. Monty, it's great seeing you. I hope to see you in person again soon. Sounds like a plan. Looking forward to it. Thank you.